This you can really call a fish story. And I was the live bait. This is another in the adventures of America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, Johnny Dollar. At insurance investigation, Johnny Dollar is only an expert. At making out his expense account, he's an absolute genius. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Intercontinental Marine Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of my expenditures during assignment in San Pedro, California, investigating the loss of two pieces of property insured by you. Or the tuna were running and so was everybody else. Or I caught a fishing boat, but you should have seen the one that got away. Expense account item one, $176.87. Airfare from home base in Hartford to off base in California. Expense account item two, $10. Cab fare, Los Angeles Municipal Airport to the waterfront office to the Pacific Deep Sea Canning Company in San Pedro. There was perfume in the air, channel number five. Inside, the name on the door said Walton. That's who I wanted to see, so I walked in. Well, who are you? I'm here to follow up the claim you made to Intercontinental Marine Insurance Company. My name is Johnny Dollar. Oh, would you bring the money? I need boats. The tuna are running. No, Mr. Walton, I didn't bring any money. All I brought is a suspicious nature and an inquisitive mind. What the devil do you mean by that crack? I don't get your fish in a stew, Mr. Walton. This is standard procedure. No insurance company is going to shell out $400,000 without first taking a long, lingering look. Well, there's not much to look at. Yeah, so I understand. According to your claim, two of your boats, the, uh... Oh, here. The, uh, Frank Walton and the Nancy Walton left port Monday afternoon and headed out in a southerly course. When you tried to establish radio contact Tuesday morning, you couldn't raise them. Pieces of wreckage and the bodies of two men were found Tuesday night, indicating that both boats were lost. That's the story. What made you so sure that both boats went down? Because of those two men whose bodies were found, one sailed in the Nancy Walton, the other sailed in the Frank Walton. What more do you people want? Just enough time to check everything thoroughly. You know, this wouldn't be the first time a shipwreck has been faked to collect insurance. Uh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I guess the faster I get you satisfied, the faster I'll collect my money. Sorry I lost my temper, Dollar. I'll do everything I can. Send Captain Carpo in. Carpo's my fleet captain, Dollar. He can give you all the details. But I'm telling you, there aren't any more. Well, one thing for sure, Mr. Walton. We can't blame it on the Pacific Ocean. According to my report, those boats sailed in fine weather. That's right. Me, boss. Yes, uh, George, this is Mr. Dollar from the insurance company. He's here to investigate the sinking. So? I'm happy to meet you, too, Captain. What do you want? First, I want your theory as to what could have happened. I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe they run into each other. As fleet captain, you hire the hands for the boats, don't you? That's right. Are you the kind of man that would hire the kind of skippers that run into each other in clear weather? They were good skippers. Now you listen to me. I've been captain of this fleet for five years. 
First time we ever lose a boat to lose a man. You think we like this idea? No, I don't, Captain Carpo. I don't think you like it any better than the insurance company likes the idea of losing $400,000. Well, at least if I find those sunken boats, that'll be salvage. No, Mr. Dollar. That'll be miracle. The meeting busted up without me getting busted up, which was uh, unusual in itself. And I hitched myself a ride out to an outfit who knows more about salt water than a Coney Island taffy maker. The U.S. Coast Guard. And clothes find the statement of the commander of the station, Lieutenant Senior Grade Miles P. Endicott, Jr. We've made thorough patrols using both air and surface craft. The bodies of the men recovered show signs that lead us to believe that they were blown clear of the lost ships by violent explosions. All the lieutenant needed to say to make my eyes light up was that one word, explosion. Because in a marine insurance investigator's book, the word explosion sets off another word, scuttling, the widely used wet variety of fraud. In other words, blowing up your own ship to collect the insurance. And continuing this chain reaction, I found the best available lead, the man in charge of the vessels involved, Captain George Carpo. I found him at 11 that night at a combination restaurant and bar named after the oriental fishing bird, the Cormorant. As I looked in through the greasy window, an interesting sight greeted me. Captain Carpo slipping into a booth already occupied by an olive-skinned brunette who was good enough looking, but uh, obviously less than a queen. Carpo stuck his face in hers, spat a few words at her that I couldn't hear. Shook his sledgehammer fist at her and stomped out through a back door. I gave the front door some business and, trying to look like I belonged to the place, strolled to the bar, bought myself a blast, and walked it over to the ladies' booth. Well, who sent for you? Do you mind? I haven't got anything to lose if you haven't. What do you mean by that? If those are your own teeth, maybe you don't want to lose them. Oh, Carpo's a jealous time, huh? He don't believe in sharing the wealth. Are you Carpo's girl? What time? Who are you? Well, if Captain Carpo comes back, he'll tell you anyway. So the name is Dollar, Johnny Dollar. I'm an insurance investigator. Investigating what? Marine life? Uh-uh. Marine death. There was two sinkings in the Walton fleet. The company that sent me here insured the boats. Sounds to me like you got yourself a tough job. Why? Oh, I don't know. Who are you going to ask questions? They've been reported up with all hands lost. Who knows? Maybe I'll bump into a talkative seagull. Or uh, maybe, if I'm lucky, a talkative girl. What have you got that could make a girl talkative, mister? Well, discounting my natural beauty and charm, I have money. Not too much money, but money. Keep coming. I know enough not to talk before I give what I want. Well, that makes it a Mexican standoff. I know enough not to pay for something I haven't heard yet. Let's start out with an inexpensive question, like, uh, what's your name? You can have that for free. Anita Vargas. How long have you known Carpo? If you'll pardon the expression, on and off for the last six months. How's he for money? Has he turned into a big spender recently? Sure. Instead of two drinks a night, he's now buying me four. Carpo will never be a big spender. Where does he live? 1423 Parade Street. How far is that from here? It's here. He lives upstairs. That called for a change of scene. I didn't know whether Anita Varghese really had anything to sell or not. 
But I didn't want what was left of our set-a-set to be interrupted by a violent re-arrival of the mighty Captain Carpo. So, expense account item three, four dollars, picking up our tabs. Item four, six bits, picking up a taxi, which dropped us at another bar, slightly less oriental, but definitely more obnoxious. We grabbed ourselves a table with a view, a view of the sawdust on the floor, and waited for a waiter. He didn't come, but somebody else did. The owner of the lost fishing boats, Mr. Roscoe Walton. What are you doing with this character, Anita? I met him in college, Roscoe. Now beat it. And since one of you been getting drunk... Don't tell me he's your boyfriend, too. Uh-huh, part-time. Maybe I'd better get lost. Uh, I'll call you later. Yeah, maybe you better get lost. And stay that way. Go ahead, Johnny. You better go. Well, uh, happy hangover, Mr. Walton. You don't look like no college boy to me. I was no professor of mathematics, either. But I could add this much up. If those tuna clippers had gone down by explosion, somebody had to buy some explosives. Maybe locally. That problem I took to the local police, who went to work looking up names in the dynamite register. And since those explosives would have been planted while the boats were under the care and supervision of Captain Carpo, that problem I decided to take to him. It was 1.30 in the morning when I got back to the front of the Cormorant restaurant and bar. The grease joint was dark, but a light was burning on the second and top floor. I got halfway up the front stairs to ask my leading suspect a few questions about explosions when I heard something. Carpo was still moving when I got up there, but not for long. The back door was as open as the captain's life was closed. I looked down the back flight of stairs. It was either too dark, or there wasn't anybody there, and I wasn't going down to look. I'd been over the body just to make sure. Oh. First they beat him half to death. I wonder why they didn't finish him that way. Huh? Well, sir, perhaps it would be best if you were to remain where you are. At least my pistol seems to recommend it. Well, well, you seem to have done inestimable damage to my good friend, Captain Carpo. The poor fellow seems to be definitely dead. In just a moment, we will return to the second act of Johnny Dollar. But first... You might be interested to know that CBS has acquired a couple of blocks of wood. You're not interested? Well, would you be interested if you knew that those blocks of wood had been carved into certain figures? No. Well, then let's try this. Uh, would you be interested if you knew that those carved blocks of wood could talk? Ah, now you're beginning to sit up and take notice. Well, we might as well come out and tell you that these talking blocks of wood are named Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd. That they and a lively fellow named Edgar Bergen will be making their first appearance over most of these same CBS stations this Sunday evening, and that you'll be able to hear them every Sunday thereafter. Now, with our star, Charles Russell, we return to the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. There 
There I was again. Always the suspect, but never the tried. With a dead body at my feet and a pistol at my head. The man holding it was neither small nor large. Thomas Mitchell type. His frame was fighting the seams of a sloppy tweed suit. And his pouchy face was fighting the alcoholic content of his blood. Well, sir, what do you have to say for yourself? Oh, don't be ridiculous. I came to talk to this man. Killing him would hardly be the way to kick off a conversation. How about you? What are you doing here at 1.30 in the morning? <laughs> most amusing, most. Two accused men, each of them judging the other. <laughs> With a dead man for a jury. All right, then. As for my testimony, my name is Cricket. I was on my way to discuss with the good Captain Carpo a matter of possible mutual profit. Naturally, when I heard the shots from the street, I hastened to his assistance. I won't ask you how you knew Carpo was getting shot instead of doing the shooting. My name is Dollar. I'm an insurance investigator from Hartford, Connecticut. I was sent out here to look into two sinkings in the captain's fleet. Oh, then you and I share a common interest. My business is ship salvage. <laughs> it's obvious that I should put up this pistol and replace it with a shake of a hand. How do you do, sir? In my business, you never know. How do you do? This is indeed a most fortunate meeting. Uh, a pity that it should take place upon the very threshold of tragedy. Uh, poor, poor Carpo. His face seems to have enjoyed the worst of an encounter with a monkey's fist. How's that? A monkey's fist. I mean, what's that? Well, a monkey's fist, sir, is a highly complicated knot woven about a slug of lead uh, to lend weight. Ordinarily, it is intended for use at the end of a heaving line. However, it is sometimes used by seamen in the forecastle in the administering of torturous beatings. Now, what do you make of that? Well, if we can take the word of the centuries for it, torture suggests the violent seeking of information. That would indeed seem to be the case. Well, from the looks of this room, a monkey's fist or any other kind of knot wouldn't be hard to lay your hands on. What's that one on the wall there? Oh, that, uh, that uh. is a miniature of a knotted ship's fender. Yes, uh, a device for cushioning the shock between a ship and a wharf or another vessel. Mm. In modern sailing, this type has largely been replaced by the commercial cork variety. Mm -hmm. Oh, somebody evidently heard the shots and notified the police. <laughs> Awkward. Uh, look, Mr. Cricket, yeah? I feel like talking, but not to the police. Uh, splendid. <laughs> Perhaps then you would be kind enough to uh, join me in a nightcap at my quarters? Uh, lead me to it. Cricket's quarters turned out to be afloat and moored to a dock. It was a PT boat, ex-Navy. Well, sit down, sit down. Make yourself comfortable. All right. <laughs> now, first, uh, that nightcap. <laughs> Yo-hoo-hoo, sir, and a bottle of rum. <laughs> and now, uh, if you'll do the honors... Delighted. I will invite the London Symphony to play behind our chair. Tchaikovsky, the pathétique. Oh, utterly beautiful. Well, sweet phonograph records, soft lights, and hard liquor. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff I enjoy in my time off, which this doesn't happen to be. Hey, there we are. Now, now to business. Mr. Dollar, I assume that the insurance company that sent you out here is not uh, satisfied with the story of the sinking of the two vessels, Frank and Nancy Walton. Mm -hmm. I assume further that you have been authorized to spend any necessary monies to not only view the evidence firsthand, but also if that evidence proves a criminal intent to be able to retrieve it from the ocean floor for use in court. Are my assumptions correct? They are. But uh, it can't be as simple as you make it sound. Uh -huh. The first job seems to me the toughest. 
funny spot where those clippers went down. <laughs> I, I would venture to say that with my special equipment, I could detect the presence of the fillings in Davy Jones' teeth. <laughs> it is fantastic, sir. And uh, about your price, is that fantastic, too? My proposition is this. A flat price of $5,000. And in the event that criminal intent is proved, the possession of the recovered hulks. I assume this 5000 is only payable if you succeed in locating the boats. <laughs> Let us substitute the term returnable for the word payable. I will need $5,000 in advance, and our contract shall state that in the unlikely event of failure, you shall get your money back less my necessary expenses. Agreed? Agreed. Good. I'll have your money for you in the morning. Good. I trust I shall have your boats for you in the afternoon. I couldn't tell yet about his fantastic sonic sounding device, but uh, otherwise, Mr. Cricket was well equipped. By ship to shore telephone, he ordered me a taxi, which I ordered to a corner near Roscoe Walton's Pacific Deep Sea Canning Company. Carpo's death made me want to get a good look at Carpo's office. Something about the way he died kept baiting up the thought that there was something fishier about this case than just plain old-fashioned insurance fraud. The only thing that was out of place in the place was under a rug, under Carpo's desk, a wall safe sunk in the floor. That proved easier to open than a poker hand with three aces. I lifted the heavy steel door. The first thing I saw was an oblong package, brown paper. I stuck one hand in to lift it out, and I couldn't. So I used two, and my back it was as heavy as lead. But when I tore off the wrapping, I saw that it was as valuable as gold, because that's what it was, a gold ingot. I didn't even have time to wonder, because the subject suddenly changed from lead to gold to cold steel in his void in his hand. Hold it there. Hey, Mr. Dollar. Oh. It's a little late to be canning fish, isn't it, Walton? Yes, but it seems to be just right for breaking and entering. What are you doing here? Entering the last phase of this investigation, Walton, and breaking the back of your little racket. Or I should say big. What do you mean, racket? To me, it looks like your boats have been bringing in more than fish from the Mexican coast. This heavy little handful makes it look like they've been hauling in Mexican gold. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to stand here and be accused. You're so right you're not going to stand there. Not on those feet. Give me that. You and take this. Oh, Johnny. Are you hurt? Are you kidding? You'll never make a living being a fight referee. I'm what is commonly known as the winner. Johnny, do, do you really believe what you said is true? What about smuggling in Mexican gold? Yeah. Listen, Anita. When you find a private citizen with a gold ingot, he is not using it for a watch fob. The only thing I learned after that was that two hours in the sack does not constitute a good night's sleep. By 10 in the morning, one phone call east and one telegram west delivered $5,000 into my hands from a local bank. And I, after a quick call to the Coast Guard to cover a few final details, placed myself into the hands of Mr. Cricket, deep-sea guide extraordinary. Two jolting hours later, our bucking bronco with a briny had us crashing through the swell somewhere off the island of San Clemente, which is somewhere some 60 miles off the coast of Southern California. Well, 
dollar, my boy. Enjoying the voyage? Yeah. Oh, come now. This isn't what a sailor would call rough weather, you understand? Uh, I understand. I only hope my breakfast does. Oh, this is nothing. Why, I recall one time off the Spanish coast... Mr. Cricket! Yes, my man? According to my reading, we're about there. Good, good. Reduce your RPM. Now, now, Dollar. Now, prepare to be amazed. Mr. Cricket had good reason to chirp about one thing. He sure knew his business. An hour later, the hoax had been located. We were riding on a mushroom anchor. A diver had been put over the side and was tug-of-war topside by a cable on a winch. All right, careful now. Okay, clear the rail. Easy, does it. Far away. He's aboard and flat. Quickly, quickly now, get his helmet off. Now, Dollar, we shall see, we shall see. For 5,000 bucks, I'm going to have to see. Well, Riley, what luck? We hit it right on the nose. They're both down there 30 yards apart. <laughs> well, Dollar, are you satisfied? Just about 90%, Mr. Craigot. Oh, and the 10%? Oh, look, it's this way, Mr. Craigot. If this case gets any place, I'll probably have to testify in court. So far, everything I've got is secondhand. That isn't worth much in court. I've got to see those boats. What? Why, good heavens, man. You, uh, you mean you want to go over the side? I don't particularly want to, but it seems to be part of this job. Many times before in my career, I have thought I had a heavy weight on my shoulders. But that diver's helmet set the new record. And those lead shoes and that rubberized canvas suit didn't feel exactly zoot. The temperature of the water outside felt much cooler than that forming on my brows. This was a steam bath, fair tight. Eight days later, in my mind at least, my lead wedgies groped for a foothold on a slimy bottom, and I had arrived shipside. As I had no immediate way of determining the sex of a sunken ship, I couldn't tell from a bath beam whether I was looking at the Frank or the Nancy Walton. About then, a passing current grabbed me and invited me out to dance along the ocean floor. I grabbed out for anything for support, and it turned out to be a rope hanging from the clipper's gunnel. When the drift passed on in the hut, I had a chance to take a closer look at what I was hanging on to. The line was secured to a woven rope ship's fender, which Mr. Cricket had not so long before told me was fashioned about a buoyant core of cork. But this one felt heavy enough to be loaded with county cork. And as for buoyancy, this was about as buoyant as a lead balloon. It was resting on the bottom and heavy to lift. The next current that swept over me was mental. I clawed the shark knife out of the diving suit belt, started hacking at the woven rope, then through a thin layer of canvas. And that's as far as I got. Dollar, is this phone system operating? Here now, Dollar. Are you there? This ain't the three little fishies. Oh, good. Have you seen the ships? Yeah, they're here, all right. Are you satisfied that they were sunk by explosion? Yep. They're blasted in all directions. Then I have earned my $5,000, and I must bid you farewell. 
What? What are you talking about? Oh, you have been all but lost in a diving accident. Oh, oh yourself. What will that get you? In disposing of you, sir, I am confident that as well as pocketing your $5,000, I will also do away with the meddling of the insurance company. You see, when my diver comes down to recover your unfortunate body, he will continue our search for the gold. Oh, well, I've got news for you, pal. You evidently didn't knock the hiding place out of Carpo before you killed him. But I was lucky. Not only have I already found that gold, I have stashed it. Here now, Dollar. You're bluffing. If you think so, turn off my air. Ah, so you do know about it. Uh, Dollar, tell me honestly, are you open to terms? Well, uh, I'll think about it. All the way! The trip up was slower than the trip down, which was luck for me. The first thing I heard when I broke to the surface was muffled by the helmet, but unmistakably gunfire. The Marines hadn't landed, but by George, the Coast Guard certainly had, and I had a grandstand seat for the whole affair. My winchman was busy ducking bullets, and the winch just didn't decide to stop on its own hook. So I went riding skyward until I was stopped by the tip of the boom. And there I was, hanging on its own hook, suspended over the deck, looking through my helmet glass at the raging battle below. Cricket directly below me was pumping a high-powered rod rifle, and between shots, shouting curses at whoever had opened fire on the U.S. government. Lieutenant Senior Grade, Miles P. Endicott Jr. stood silhouetted against the sky on the flying bridge of the Coast Guard cutter. I looked down 20 feet between my dangling lead-weighted feet and saw Cricket taking careful aim in his direction. But once again, I grabbed my razor-edged shark knife, stuck it under the copper rim of my breastplate, and ripped at the canvas, and bombs away! My weight did the rest! account, item five. Cab fare to the San Pedro police headquarters where I made my statement and heard Mr. Cricket, a badly damaged Mr. Cricket. Well, sir, during a short stay in Cleveland, it was brought to my attention that every city in the country was suffering an epidemic of small-time gold robberies, dentist offices, pawn shops, and so forth. Such a condition piqued my curiosity. Yes. Well, there's my love for money. And I studied the situation more closely. To my amazement, I learned that the gold was being melted down, fashioned into ingots, and sent off somewhere to the Orient for use in the gold and gun-smuggling traffic. It occurred to me that if I could intercept the gold immediately after its dispatch, under the guidance of Captain Capo, to a larger ship being met at sea by his tuna clippers, and I could realize for myself a tidy profit. Expense account, item six. $7.50, a five-pound box of chocolates for Miss Anita Varghese. Address, San Pedro Municipal Jail. It seems that the police sometimes classify a part-time girlfriend as an all-time accomplice. Expense account item seven, 
airfare, Los Angeles to Hartford, $176.87. And uh, being Friday, what do you think they serve for dinner on the plane? What else? Tuna fish salad. Uh, expense account total, $1,264.28. Yours, uh, truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is produced and directed by Gordon T. Hughes and stars Charles Russell. Script by Paul Dudley and Gil Dowd. Featured in the cast were Willard Waterman, Junius Matthews, Edmund McDonald, Georgia Ellis, Larry Dobkin, and Paul Dubois. The special music is written and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Be sure and be with us at this same time next week when another unusual expense account is handed in by yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Every fall, the ladies like to go out and get some new fall clothes. Well, CBS has gone out and gotten some new fall shows. One of the gayest of these new programs is the Red Skelton Show, which makes its bow over most of these same CBS stations this Sunday night. There's no one quite like Red Skelton, as you'll find out when you tune in tomorrow. The Red Skelton Show is a part of the CBS great Sunday night laugh lineup. Don't miss it. Now stay tuned for Vaughn Monroe, who follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. Paul Masterson speaking. This is CBS. The Columbia Broadcasting System. This is a horse on me. But I did find out that in a race for life and death, the police laboratory is where they make the photo finish. This is another in the adventures of America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, Johnny Dollar. At insurance investigation, Johnny Dollar is only an expert. At making out his expense account, he is an absolute genius. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Hartford Branch, Lloyd's Underwriters Association. The following is an accounting of my expenditures during investigation of the circumstances threatening the life of the insured, the racehorse pile driver. Or, he'd have been way off his feet if I didn't know my oats. Or, it's great to get a kick out of life so long as it isn't a kick in the head. Expense account item one, 18 cents, one package of cigarettes. You may consider this a personal item, but uh, that's where this case really started, at the cigar stand, ground floor, terminal office building, here in Hartford. I had come down in one of the elevators, noticed a little guy with a cane standing with a starter. After I passed them, I felt myself being pointed out, and not being the type who likes being followed for long periods of time, I gave myself a good reason to stop and look things over. Hello, Mr. Dollar. Hiya, Mac. Give me a pack of luckies, will you? Uh, 
I just sold you a pack when you came in. I know. But things may really start smoking any minute. Here. to you, sir. I've been led to believe that you were one Mr. John Dollar. Would that be a fact? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm Dollar. What can I do for you? Well, I am quite a famous fellow myself. Perhaps you've heard of the fabulous jockey Earl Sand? Yeah, but... Uh... Well, next to him, I was among the best. May I introduce myself? I'm the famous little Nettie Montana, sometimes called the short Johnny Longdon. Shake hands. Oh, how do you do? Oh, to business. I think I have a way for you to solve my problem and make yourself an honest buck, besides. Oh, now, whoa, pony boy, you're wasting your time. I don't bet the horses, and when I do, I don't buy tips from touts. Oh, now, wait a minute, pal. I did not introduce myself for the purpose of being insulted. I will have you know that I, too, do not consort with touts. I will thank you to keep a civil tongue in your head. Oh, I can see this is going to be one of those days... What is your problem, mister? Well, it is a problem best not overheard by people in the lobbies of office buildings. But this much I can't tell you. It is about a horse and $50,000 insurance. That is why I came to you. Well, I'd be richer if I'd known more about horses and poorer if I'd known less about insurance. Maybe in this thing I can break even at least. Come on. I uh, hope you are not too much of a purist to ride in a taxi. Little Nettie looked like he'd stopped growing physically at the age of 14. And every once in a while, he talked like his mind had also called it quits at about the same time. The only thing slick about him was his hair. The only thing sharp, his clothes. Liars always talk too much. And little Nettie wouldn't say a word until we were inside my apartment. So even before he started his pitch, I half believed it. Well, to take it from the beginning... I was born in a stable, and that's not just a figure of speech. They brought the hot water in a feed bucket. So you can understand my deep affection for horses. Yeah. Now, on top of that, kindly consider this. Mm -hmm. One horse in particular, a very brave steed by the name of Piledriver, has not only made me very famous, but has also made me a very large pile of hay. I have ridden Piledriver to a win position since he was a maiden. Piledriver, huh? Quite a hunk of horse. Uh-huh. Ah, you remember. Yeah. Then you might also remember that he was on his way to becoming one of the big money winners of all time. Until I had to go and fall off a livery stable horse while teaching a girl how to ride in Central Park. It busted up my leg and, I might add, my future. To say nothing to pile drivers, he hasn't won a race since I got grounded. Yeah, well, what's all this got to do with insurance? Mr. Dollar, they are going to murder him. Oh? Can you guess why? I can try. Pile driver is heavily insured. He's also no longer winning races. He's also a man who can't have a family. No good for studs. So if pile driver should trip and break a leg, the owner would be entitled to shoot him, and he'd still collect the insurance. I know, it's been done. You have hit the horseshoe nail on the head. Mr. Dollar, I have a considerable bundle of money stashed away, and I am willing to devote a considerable lump of it to the purpose of saving pile driver. Now, maybe you wouldn't understand such a thing, but... I happen to love that horse. I understand it, Nettie. Where is he? Well, he is currently stabled at a track named Hiawatha. Oh, by the shores of Gitchigumi? No, no, by the shores of Lake Michigan. This is located slightly north of a place called Chicago. Five telephone calls and a few hundred questions later, I learned that Piledriver was insured by your company. Got the assignment and was on my way. So... 
Expense account item two, airfare, Hartford to Chicago, $57.72. Little Nettie insisted on coming along, and he kept the hum of the plane from being humdrum as follows. Well, Johnny, the gentleman who owns Pile Driver is an old Kentucky mint julep sponge named Colonel Faraday Bushnell. Mm -hmm. Now, this character has a very black heart hiding beneath a head of white hair. Yes, sir. I trusted him until I heard him say what he was going to do. From then on, I have been seriously tempted to wrap these hands around his neck and squeeze. All I can say is he had better not hurt Pile Driver. Expense account, item three, $16.40. Cab fare, Chicago Municipal Airport to Hiawatha Racetrack. Arrival time, 10 a.m. To me, a racetrack always smells good. Of horses, green grass, and excitement. Here you are, driver. Keep the change. Well, this, as the saying goes, is it, Mr. Dollar. You'll have to take it from here. Okay. Oh, hey, uh, yeah. one last word of warning. Watch out for his daughter, Lila. Why? Is she dangerous? To a guy like me? No. But to a guy like you, yes. Uh, uh, pardon me, uh, miss. Can you tell me where I'll find the boss around here, Colonel Bushnell? Oh. Mm. I was just going to chase you away. But you don't look like just another hay and grain merchant. What you selling? I'm not. I'm buying. Where's your daddy? How do you know the colonel is my daddy? Well, he told me he had a pretty daughter. Oh, well, thanks. Just who are you, mister? Well, as for the name, that's Johnny Dollar. As for my business, that's trying to buy one of your father's horses. Well, the colonel won't be back for a little bit, but I'm bossing while he's away. I'll tell you now, I don't think he's figuring on selling any of his horses. But I'll be glad to show them to you. Good enough. But there's uh, only one I'm really interested in. Pile driver. Pile driver? Why, no, Daddy wouldn't sell him. Why not? Well, he's practically one of the family. He, he put me through the last two years of college. Do you mind if I see him anyway? Why, no, not at all. Right over here. Okay. Here, baby. You have company, darling. Meet Mr. Dollar. Hello. Quite a horse. No, he's just a perfect deer, aren't you, darling? Mr. Dollar... Why do you want to buy Pile Driver? Oh, he's a great horse. Got a great record. Have you been following him lately? Yeah. Oh, I know he hasn't been winning. That ought to make his price cheap and the odds long when he gets back running. I just happen to think I can make a winner out of him again. But his spirit's all gone. How do you think you're going to do that? Well, if I told you, his price might go right back up. Johnny, darling. Hmm? I can't help it, darling. Hey, well, Kiss wait a minute. Let's go. Wait a minute. Please, Let's darling, go. please. Uh, Oh, uh, it was great fun, uh, but what was it for? Johnny, you shouldn't have, right out here in the open. Huh? Oh, Leo. Yeah, what's going on? Now, wait, Leo, honey. This guy ain't your brother, he'll wish he was. Besides, that's no way to kiss brothers. You, get out of here. Look, Buster, if you aren't this girl's father, you'd better start doing some wishing. Oh, you think so, huh? This is the roughest game of post office I ever got mixed How up in. Like Heads like this, hammer locks. Let him get tough now and I'll bust his arm. Gentlemen, gentlemen, what's going on here? You fix 
Peters there. Run along now about your business. Leo, I must say I am surprised at you fighting in front of a lady. Oh, Dad. Get him off of me. Here, young man. I demand that you dismount, Mr. Colby. Well, sooner or later, I guess I'll have to. Now, listen, Leo, are you paying close attention? Uh, yeah. After I let you up, if you make one move, except away from here, I'll give you a pair of fat ears, okay? Oh, look at the suit. I'm going to have to start wearing knee pads. Come on, Leo, honey. Let's get away from here. I hope you're not blaming me for what happened. I don't I know. Hold up, Now, see here. I demand an explanation. So do I. I came here to get to the horse business, and I end up in the fight racket. Who is that guy? That gentleman, sir. Is Leo Corbett, a brother horse owner. And I might do the favor of warning you that Mr. Corbett is a hard enough man in business dealings. But when it comes to my daughter, he's downright violent. Your daughter was downright impulsive. Maybe so. But Leo is hardly the type to stand by while some other fellow kisses his girl. And I saw that happen with my own eyes. Well, don't let it worry you, Colonel. I didn't come here to collect lipstick samples. Well, there's one thing I can be glad about in my encounter with Mr. Leo Corbett. What is that? That he isn't James J. Come on, Colonel. Let's talk business. Hey, bartender. Hey, Mr. Dollar, over here. Oh, uh, never mind. There's my man over there. How are you, Denny? Oh, I'm fine. Hey, but you, where did you catch that mouse under your eye? Oh, I'm sharp as a trap, I am. You were so right about Miss Bushnell. She's not only dangerous, she's daffy. Huh? I didn't know she could hit that hard. Oh, no, she didn't. Let's just say that she has a novel way of introducing people to her boyfriend. Oh. You know him? Leo Corbett? Well, if I knew any more, I'd be the racing commission's witness. He owns a string of very fast horses who run very slow until the odds get right. Then he bets him up to the brisket, wins himself a potful. It's also rumored that he is uh, stiff competition to the Perry Mutual machines. He books big bets among the owners. Well, they'll catch up to him sooner or later. They always do. Amen. But uh, about that yeah. human glue factory, my friend, the horse-killing colonel, what's with him? Well, I offered him $60,000 for file driver. Huh? That's 10000 more than he'd get if he knocked him off and collected the insurance. Yeah, where are you going to lay your mitts on 60 Gs? I haven't got that kind of dough. We don't need that kind of dough, little Nettie. You see, I told Bushnell that I was sending to California for my private vet and that he'd be here in three days. And that once he pronounced the horse sound, I'd give him the money. Yeah, but that only means that Piledriver is safe for another three days. And then what? And those three days, it's up to me to prove intent. And if it's there, I'll prove it. And have the policy canceled. Once that's done, he'll probably be willing to pedal a horse for 10000 That I can handle. But in the meantime, I'm not taking any chances, see? I'm keeping Pile Driver under my own personal eye. I wish you wouldn't, Eddie. We don't want the colonel getting suspicious. I can't help it, Mr. Dollar. I just can't help it. Okay, Nettie, but don't blow it. Be careful. Like all racetracks, Hiawatha was surrounded by motor courts and bungalows with rooms for rent. So, expense account item four, $3, room rent. I set the tin alarm clock for eight and my ear for any time and went most of the way to sleep. First things being first, I dreamed of girls. Then, I dreamed of fire engines. And suddenly, I realized why. I was hearing some. I bounced out of bed and over to the window. 
There I saw an incendiary sunset hanging over the racetrack stables. I jumped into my pants and into the landlady's car and got over there as fast as a 1929 Ford could take me. Hey, you. You. What? How'd it start? Where'd he go? I didn't see him, but I hear he ran in the fire and didn't come out. Some crank, I guess. I had one particular horse to get to in a hurry. And I hoped one particular guy. The door to pile driver's stall was closed and padlocked. I crowbarred the stable out of the wood with the pick end of a fire axe. Threw the door open, grabbed a lungful of fresh air, closed my eyes and slammed into the smoke. could have been smoked to death, burned to death, or stamped to death, but I had to take the chance. <coughs> Steady, yo. Whoa, whoa, pile driver. Now, take it easy. Easy, easy, boy. <coughs> I whacked him on the rump with the axe handle and then dropped it. I slipped to my knees, started groping across the straw-covered floor. I knew that if there was any air in there, that's where it would be. And if there was an ex-jockey in there, that's where he would be. And that's where he was. In the first corner I tried. I crawfished backwards toward the door, dragging him inch by inch out into the clean, cold shower of fresh night air. But I could have saved myself the trip. Little Nettie Montana was dead. He'd had a horseshoe hung on his forehead, but not for luck. And all I could think of at the moment was a jockey's best friend is not always his horse. In just a moment, we will return to the second act of Johnny Dollar. But first... May we take just a moment from tonight's Johnny Dollar story to remind you that three more fine adventure shows come your way each Saturday night on most of these same CBS stations. First, there are the adventures of Philip Marlowe, based on the smart and tough private eye created by Raymond Chandler. Second, there's Gangbusters, one of the most famous crime shows on the air, reenacting outstanding police cases in real life. Third, there is Escape, a highly unusual adventure show which fulfills your need for Escape. Here these three, Philip Marlowe, Gangbusters, and Escape, along with yours truly, Johnny Dollar, every Saturday night, won't you? Tune in, tune in this fall, for the shows that you love best of all. Listen carefully. Here's the address. It's CBS, CBS. Now with our star, Charles Russell, we return to the second act of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Tough luck. Nice try, little Nettie. Mr. Dollar. Mr. Dollar, this is horrible. I hope it's little Nettie. It sure is. What's left of little Nettie? You don't... Yeah, I mean he's dead. You know, when I was a kid, I knew about a story with a horse and a woman in it. Helen of Troy. I should have remembered that before I tangled with you. Why don't you get lost? Well, whatever's the matter with you? Look, Miss Bushnell, two minutes after I met you, you bagged me into a fist fight with your boyfriend with a phony kiss. 
I don't know how much you had to do with putting little Nettie where he is, but I intend to find out. Why, you're insane. Any fool, even you, Mr. Dollar, can plainly see that this boy's been kicked in the head by a horse. Lila, Lila, child, what are you doing here? Why, I saw Why? the... Why? Who's that on the ground? Why? It's little Nettie. Don't tell me he's dead. What would you be if you got kicked in the head by a horse, Colonel? Why? Why, the poor boy. I held this lad in deep affection until just a few months back. He was my best jockey. What on earth was he doing around here at this time of night? From all I can see, little Nettie swapped his life for pile drivers. As small as he was, it's a pretty big price to pay. Although I guess you wouldn't think so, would you? What? What's that? I demand an explanation of precisely what you mean, sir. I mean that to some people, a dead horse is more valuable than a live one. Too bad you can't go count your money. I'm going to take my friend to the morgue. An hour later, little Nettie was resting better than I was. I'd made my report to the police and was back pacing the floor of my rented room. There wasn't a long walk. Yeah? This is Lila Bushnell. i got to see you right away. Why don't you start another fire? That'll draw me. I didn't have anything to do with that fire, but I must talk to you right away. Where can I meet you? Have you got a car? Yes, yes, I'll come any place. Well, pick me up here in 20 minutes. Come alone, and we'll take a little drive to the country. I want it to be just the three of us. You and me and the dewdrops. Dawn was making a dark gray promise in the sky when she picked me up and a few easy-to-please birds had found something to sing about. During the first five miles, Lila denied everything except that she was a woman, and there was no hiding that. I had her pull in under a tree and said, Well, then why'd you call me? It... It was something you said to my father about... about a horse being more valuable dead than alive. You sold me out once. What are you planning on now? Selling out your old man? You women... You know, if the truth is ever told, it'll probably come out that Goldilocks cut her grandmother's throat to swipe the gold out of her teeth. Please don't make fun of me. Fun, she calls it. Well, if you got something to spill, get it off your chest. My father owes Leo Corbett $50,000. He lost it betting on pile driver. Leo's been demanding his money, and father doesn't have it. And I heard Leo practically order father to destroy pile driver for the insurance. And what did Daddy dear say to that? He, he said he'd do it. But I know he wouldn't. I know he didn't set that fire. How do you know? I... I just know, that's all. Now, that'll sound good to a jury. Why are you coming to me with all this stuff? Because you're our only hope. Can't you buy a driver right away? It would solve everything. Everything but one thing. What's that? Why did you go to all that trouble to get me punched in the eye? Oh, that? Yeah. I just wanted to show Leo that he wasn't going to have everything his own way. And you look strong enough to do it. Wow. That's a stupid answer. Why not? Makes a stupid kind of sense. She dropped me off at my rooming house where I dropped off to sleep. It was, however, only a four-hour plunge. Expense account item five, six fifty. Cab fare to headquarters, homicide division, Chicago police. That's one city where the cops still wear an old-fashioned star, but they sure do operate with a new-fashioned speed. As witness, the enclosed report made by Lieutenant Craig six hours after filing of inquiry. According to the findings of the autopsy, Dollar, your hunch or whatever you call it was right. The deceased, uh, little Nettie, was not kicked to death by a horse. The 
Examination of the wound reveals that it was administered by a new horseshoe. A shoe on a horse's hoof would have left traces of uh, straw, etc. We say that the fatal weapon was swung by person or persons unknown. As you suggested, he'd have to have been standing on his head to have the horseshoe make the mark it did if the horse had kicked him. The lieutenant had made only one mistake. He should have said person or persons known. Expense account, item six. Ten cents. Two telephone calls. The idea I was working on, I'll give you for nothing. Expense account, item seven. Six fifty. Cab fare to administration building, Hiawatha Racetrack, where the afternoon's program was in progress and uh, where I got the wholehearted cooperation of the track officials and the use of a vacant office in which to hold the meeting I had set up. I sat myself in a swivel chair and waited. Come in. Mr. Dollar, I can't tell you how happy I am that our little transaction is about to be consummated. If you have the money with you, sir, pile driver is yours. Now, wait a minute, Colonel. Let's not go consummating too quickly. But, my boy, you indicated over the telephone. I indicated over the phone just this. I said my offer was as good as it ever was. And to tell you the truth, it's not very good. Now, see here. Who's that? Sit down, Colonel. Come in. Why, Leo! What are you doing up here? Anytime anybody shows up to hand over 60000 to you for pile driver, I'm going to be here. That's exactly what this smart guy called me up to tell me he's about to do. Now, now, gentlemen, gentlemen, let's take it easy. Before I do anything, I want to make sure I'm not doing business with a murderer. Sir, I demand an explanation. What about you, Leo? Yeah, so do I. Well, here it is. The Chicago police know two things. One... That last night's fire was set. And two, that little Nettie was murdered. And that little Nettie got a couple of lungfuls of smoke before he got hit over the head with a horseshoe. That means that whoever hit him over the head sucked in some smoke, too. I've never heard such a pack of nonsense in my life. What are you getting at, wise guy? Just what I told you. I don't want to do business with a murderer. Especially $60,000 worth. But I've made it easy on you to prove that you aren't. You see, I got a doctor in the next room with portable x-ray equipment. If you've got fire smoke in your lungs, it'll show up. Now, how about it? Why, this is ridiculous. Why don't you leave the Dick Tracy stuff to the funny papers? Because I don't feel like laughing. Now, once more, how about it? Press it, I, I still don't know what this tomfoolery is about, and I, I'll feel downright silly while I'm doing it, but I'm willing to take my chances. Okay. Leo, you're first. Follow me. Turning your back on a murderer is no way to stay healthy, but very often it's a good way to get him to make his move. This one did, right out the door, knocking me down en route, and the chase was on. Out of the building, and out toward the grandstand, and the racing circle. And there they go, on the outside, creamy boy by an It may have been Dreamy Boy at the quarter and on the track, but it was Mike Quarry by 50 lengths as he headed up an aisle into the grandstand. Dreamy Boy was still doing fine down there, and I was moving up, up here, but up near the top of the grandstand and onto the ramp leading to the press box section. And here comes Lower Flat making his hold on the inside. 
Just as Dreamy Boy hit the three-quarter, we hit the grandstand roof. And then we went into the stretch. Hey, Corbett, it's hopeless. You can't get much farther, you're running out of roof. I slid behind a ventilator and showed myself to draw his shots. He was lousy. If he hadn't been, he'd be dictating this with an air-conditioned elbow. Okay, Corbett, you've had it. I've been counting your shots. Corbett tried a few ventilators himself. And then apparently he decided the second time he fought me, he'd do better. He rushed in swinging. I was doing great training punches. But he finally moved inside and threw one. I ducked low, but he came up fast with his knee. I sat down, and he took off. Straight to the back corner edge of the pitch roof. He swung over the side and started to shinny down the 100-foot rain pipe. But that pipe was built to carry rain, not people. finish line of one tiny segment of the human race, it was gambler, arsonist, murderer, Leo Corbett, by a head. Expense account item eight, dinner for two at the Shangri-La in downtown Chicago, $34.40. Dinner itself only took 40 minutes and eight of the dollars. The rest of the evening and the money was spent listening to the story of her life. A story which would not, by any means, win any Pulitzer Prize, or, for that matter, any husbands. But sometimes when you're interested in a girl like Lila, you have to act like you're interested in what she's saying. Expense account item nine, $57.72. Airfare, Chicago to Hartford. Item ten, $1.50. One book to read on airplane, titled, How to Win at the Races. As if I just hadn't found out. Uh, expense account total, $1,449.22. I guess you could call that horse sense. Signed, yours, uh, truly, Johnny Dollar. Truly, Johnny Dollar is produced and directed by Gordon T. Hughes and stars Charles Russell. Script by Paul Dudley and Gil Dowd. Featured in the cast were Bill Conrad, Dora Singleton, Jerry Hausner, Herb Butterfield, and Hal March. The special music is written and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Be sure to be with us at this same time next week when another unusual expense account is handed in by... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Those mystery adventure shows we mentioned earlier, the fun and music and fabulous jackpot of Sing It Again, and two outstanding music shows. They're on tap for you every Saturday on most of these same CBS stations. Gene Autry comes along with his sagebrush ballads, and Vaughn Monroe is due with his songs and his great orchestra. In fact, you're invited to stay tuned right now for the Vaughn Monroe Show, for it follows immediately over most of these stations. Paul Masterson speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.